Well, with the holidays right around the corner, I thought this would be a good time to remind you that sometimes people are mean. And sometimes people can be annoying and a little bit obnoxious. Have you ever had somebody in your life that you sort of have to just gently tiptoe around them a little bit? You know, it's like sort of awkward when they're around. Or, or maybe you just don't simply get along with them. And, you know, there's other people that are going, how in the world do you even put up with this person? Anybody have somebody like that in your life? Now, here, here's the deal. If, yeah, don't point. <laughs> If you have somebody like that in your life, if you don't have a game plan of what you're going to do, those people will just drain the life right out of you. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to start a brand new, just little short two-part series called People Problems. And we're going to look at how do you have a game plan for dealing with the people that, as I've said in the past, they're like sandpaper, right? There's some people that they just rub you the wrong way. And so we're going to have a game plan of, of what to do. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, do for others what you would like them to do for you. This is often called the golden rule. Now, the golden rule sounds really good, doesn't it? Do to others what you would have them do for you. It sounds really, really good until somebody hurts you, until somebody's mean to you. And then you're like, uh-uh-uh, no, 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 no golden rule anymore. Now we're playing by my rules. You hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you right back. And it's sort of crazy if you think about it, but oftentimes other people in our lives, they actually justify us being mean to other people then when they're mean to us. They're like, yeah, they hurt you, you get them. And so we, we have this, this part of our mind where we're justifying why it's okay to be mean when people are mean to us. Some of you right now, maybe you're, you're thinking of somebody. Again, don't point to anybody, but maybe it's an ex-spouse, maybe it's a former boss, it may be a, a neighbor, a former friend. At one point, you were in a good relationship with them. You had a great relationship, but then they did something to hurt you, and now you want to hurt them back. You want to get even with them in some way. Because not only did you feel hurt, you actually were hurt. You want to get them. But yet, it's like a, a, what was it, Tom and Jerry, that they would have the little angels on the shoulders. You remember that? And there was like the one saying, no, 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 don't do that. And there's the other, like the little devil that was going, no, get them. And so there's a part of you that's going, oh, man, I, I want to get them, but I probably shouldn't. And you know what we often do? We often listen to the Spirit, and we don't get them back. But yet we're still so frustrated that we're like, I've just got this pent-up anger and, and frustration. And what we end up doing is taking out on our loved ones, our family members, our friends, that hurt and frustration. In other words, there's some collateral damage that ends up happening. So here's what I want you to understand. That's the first point there on your outline. And it's simply this, that when I try to get even with a person that I don't like, it makes me just like the person I don't like. Let me say that again. When I try to get even with a person I don't like, it makes me just like the person I don't like. Our goal as followers of Jesus is to become more and more like Jesus. But now all of a sudden, somebody's come into our lives and they've done something to us. They've hurt us in some way. They haven't been acting like Jesus. But our gut instinct is that I'm going to get them back. I'm going to hurt them. 
But realize that when you do that, you're not acting like Jesus. You're acting like the person that hurt you. So again, when I try to get even with a person I don't like, it makes me just like the person I don't like. So what do we do about this? What's the solution? Well, as with every problem in life, it's found right in here. The good old B-I-B-L-E. We actually have an example of what to do when you have people problems in your lives. So if you had a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. That's where we're going to hang out. Not just today, we're actually going to hang out there next week as well. So 1 Samuel chapter 25. Do want to welcome those of you that are watching online with us today. There's a little link right there in the upper right-hand corner of your screen called Talk Notes. If you push that, that's going to take you to uh, today's uh, scriptures we're going to look at, all the points that I'm making. Obviously, for those of you that are here in the room, you can just get that little orange card out. You can scan the QR code. That takes you right to access to the Talk Notes as well. Now, a little bit of context as you continue to turn there to First uh, uh, Samuel chapter 25. The main character of this story is going to be David. And this isn't David, the little shepherd boy that's, you know, going to defeat Goliath. It's not that David. It's not that he's older and he's now King David. This is in between him being the shepherd boy and being the king. In fact, when we get to this story here, David is actually a fugitive. You're going, why in the world would he be a fugitive? Well, we got to go all the way back to when he was a shepherd boy and he had killed Goliath. David became a national hero. Like the whole nation of Israel just loved little David. And the prophet Samuel, he eventually prophesied that one day David is going to succeed King Saul as the next king of Israel. Now that made Saul really, really angry. Why? Because he wanted his son Jonathan to be the next king of Israel. So what was Saul's solution? He tries to have David killed. He attempts it. But ironically enough, the person that actually helps David to escape is Jonathan, the one who was next in line for the throne. And so David, he's on the run, and he's hurt by King Saul. He had done nothing but help King Saul. But now Saul's out to get him. David's on the run. He's a fugitive. But what ends up happening as time goes on is other men who had also been mistreated in some way, they start to sort of come together with, with David. They start to follow David. All of a sudden, he's, he's got like this army. There's 800 men plus women and children that are following David around no matter where he goes. And again, all these people, they have this pent-up frustration. There's this hurt. They want to get back at the person that hurt them. David, in his case, he can't get back at the person who hurt him because it's King Saul. Saul is surrounded by his royal army. But what did I say earlier? If we can't get back at the person that's hurt us, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll try to, or we won't try, we uh, unintentionally mistreat those that are our loved ones. They become collateral damage. So let's pick up the story then in 1 Samuel 25, verses 2. We'll look at the first part of verse 3 then. Here's what we read. There was a wealthy man from Moan who owned the property near the town of Carmel. He had what? He had, say it with me, had a, how many? 3,000 3, sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. Now, what we need to understand is that in that day and time, owning livestock was probably even more valuable than having gold and silver. 
I mean, you wanted livestock. And the most, uh, like, coveted type of livestock would have been sheep. You wanted as many sheep as you could possibly have. Why? Well, not only could sheep feed you and your family, but you could, you know, reproduce more, and you could sell them off for meat, or if you really wanted to make a lot of money, you would get as many sheep as you could, continue to make sure that they're safe and protected, reproducing, 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 so that you could shear them of their wool, and then you could sell the wool off. So how many sheep did Nabal have? 3,000. So this is a very wealthy man. By today's standards, he would have been a, a multimillionaire. So he's very, very wealthy. And as we read here in the story, it's sheep shearing time. He is about to become even more wealthy. He's going to sell off all of this wool. Is this making sense? The more sheep that you have, the more wool it's produced, the more wool it's produced, the more you can sell it off, and the more you sell, the wealthier you're going to become. And that's exactly what is happening for Nabal here in this story. Now, like a lot of rich guys, he married way above his head. His wife, Abigail, she was quite the looker. She was really good looking, and she was very, very smart as well. Now, that's not my opinion. We actually read it right here in Scripture. Let's look at the uh, second part of verse 3. She, meaning Abigail, was not just beautiful, but intelligent as well. But her husband was what? Her husband was harsh and mean. Nabal was a descendant of Caleb. Now, what's interesting here is Nabal in Hebrew means dolt. Dolt, D-O-L-T. And if you don't know what a dolt is, Webster's Dictionary defines it this way. It's a lack of intelligence or a lack of common sense. And then in the, uh, in the uh, synonyms then for adult is an idiot, a moron, a fool, or a jackass. All right? So, I mean, that's who Nabal is. Now, are you starting to get a feeling that perhaps Nabal is going to be the bad guy of this story? You getting that feeling? Well, let's read ahead just to see if that's true or not. Verses 4 to 6. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with a message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything that you own. David knows that Nabal is about to get richer. And so he sends 10 young men in his name to say, peace. We mean you absolutely no harm. In fact, may a blessing be on you and on your family and all of your business. Now, David's doing this because he's about to make a request. But before we get to the request, he gives Nabal even more reassurance through his young men who are the messengers. Look at verse 7. David, through the messenger, says, I am told it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherd stayed among us near Carmel, we never did what? We never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. So David is like, look, not only did we not steal from you, because remember, they're on the run. They, they need to find supplies and stuff for themselves. He's like, not only did we not steal from you, but we prevented other people from coming in and stealing from you. And what David's getting at here is that it's sheep shearing time, and the reason you're going to have so much is because we made sure that none of your sheep got harmed. So you're actually going to have more because we provided personal protection to you and to your shepherds and to your flock here. So part of your profit is due to us. Verse 8, the first part, David gives even more reassurance. He says, ask your own men, and they will tell you that it's true. In other words, don't just take our word for it. Ask your own employees. They're going to tell you that we protected them all these months as they are raising these sheep. 
So again, the reason you're going to have such benefit and blessing in this sheep shearing time partially has to do with us. We didn't mistreat you. We didn't mistreat your sheep or your people. In fact, we did all that for absolutely free. Now, here's where David's going to make his request. Second part of verse 8. Therefore, since it's festival time, please show favor to us by sharing whatever you can afford so that David and his men might celebrate. So as you know, that the Jewish people have a lot of festivals and celebrations. And David knows that it's one of our festival times. But he isn't able to celebrate this festival because he doesn't have anything. So what's he doing? He's saying to Nabal, look, we protected you. We protected your sheep. So could you spare a couple sheep so that we could have our, our celebration, our festival? Share just a little bit of your profit. Verse 9, David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and then they waited for a reply. Now, before we go further to see what the reply is, Here's something you need to understand about David, and this is going to wreck some of your little childhood Sunday school memories of David that, you know, you're like, oh, David, you know, a little cute little shepherd boy, so handsome, you know, he kills the mighty Goliath and all that kind of stuff. Yes, David did that. And ultimately, we read that David became a man after God's own heart. And so that's sort of the image of David that you have in your mind. But here's what else you need to understand about David. David was a very, very violent man. Anytime he would go in to conquer a city or a people, he wiped them all out. Men, women, boys, girls, all gone. And then he would take all their stuff. He would just plunder everything that they had. He didn't leave anybody alive. Took all their stuff. That's David. That's the reputation that David had. So Nabal, he would know this reputation that David had. Which makes then Nabal's response back to David's request for a couple sheep quite shocking. Look at verses 10 to 11. Nabal says, Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young man. Who does this son of Jesse think that he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Nabal's basically like, get out of here with that nonsense. I don't want to hear that. Verse 12. So David's young men returned and told him, meaning David, what Nabal had said. And David said, ah, shucks, fellas. Good try. Better luck next time. Right? Is that what he said? No. No, that's not David at all. Here's what he actually says. Look at verse 13. Get your swords was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David, and 200 remained behind to guard their camp. So David is not playing here. Not only is he going to send his troops out, but it says that David did what? He strapped on his own sword. Now here's a question for you. Where did David get his sword from? Where did David get his sword from? Who remembers? Yeah, Goliath. When he had killed Goliath, he takes Goliath's sword. That sword should have been a reminder to him of God's promise, of God's faithfulness, of God's protection, of God's provision for his life. 
It should have been a reminder that, look, when you face giants, when you face obstacles, man, you, you can just trust in God. You don't have to trust in your own strength, your own willpower, what your own thinking says to do. No, you trust in God and in God alone. But that's not what David is doing here. David has been offended, and so he decides to take his frustration out on the ball. In fact, he takes 400 men with him. Talk about an overreaction here. I mean, this is going to be a complete massacre that's going to happen. I've said this in the past, that hurt people hurt people. In this case, it's hunted people hunt people. David's being hunted, and now he's going to hunt people down. Now, let's be honest. Have you ever been like David here? Maybe not like gathering 400 men and strapping on your sword, but have you ever been to that place where you're bound and determined to get back at somebody who has hurt you? You've got some people problems in your life, and you go, I'm going to get them. I'm going to hurt them. They hurt me. They hurt my family. They're going to get it. They're going to have to pay for this. And what's funny is we run the script in our mind that we, we like justify why it's okay that I'm about to do what I'm about to do or why I'm about to say what it is I'm about to say. Descriptive, I'm right and they're wrong. And that's exactly what David's doing here. How dare they do this to me? After all we did for them, they can't just give us a little bit of their profit here. I mean, we could have stolen from them, but no, we protected them. And now they want to repay the good that we've done with evil. So David's running the script. He's justifying why it's okay to do what he's about to do. And let's see where this all lands in his brain. Skip down a couple verses, verses 21 to 22. David thought, I guarded, these man, or, I guarded this man's stuff in the desert for nothing. Not one of his possessions was missing, yet he has paid back with evil when I was good to him. May God strike me dead if I don't kill every last one of Nabal's men before morning. David's like, I'll kill every last one of his men. That'll teach Nabal a lesson here. I want to stop for a second before we continue on. And I want you to realize that there's two different responses that we've seen in this story. First, you have Nabal, who decides that he's going to return the good that's been done to him with evil. And that's bad. We said that Nabal was probably going to be the bad guy in this story. He is returning the good with evil. But David, his response is even worse. Because what is David doing? He is paying back evil with evil. You hurt me, and now I'm going to hurt you. So neither one of them are the hero of this story. David thinks that his only option is to get even with Nabal, to pay him back. But I'm here today to say that there is another option. You want to know what the other option is? Yes? No? Sleeping? What are we doing here? You want to know what the other option is? Come back next week. We're going to talk about what that option is. All right. <laughs> no, seriously. We'll, we'll finish this story next week of what the, the third option is, what the other response in the story is. But for today, what I want to do is give you four questions to think about anytime you have people that are causing problems in your life and that you're tempted to get even. So here's four questions you can ask yourself. Number one, if you're taking notes, do I really want to be even with someone 
that I don't even like. Again, do I really want to be even with someone I don't even like? This is what we talked about earlier. Think about it. What you're saying is they're here and I want to get even with them. In other words, you want to become just like the person that hurts you. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to be even with someone? Doesn't make sense. And what ends up happening is if you do try to get even, guess what they're going to do? Now they feel slighted and they're going to try to get even back because they think that now you're ahead. And then it just becomes this vicious cycle of you continually trying to hurt one another. So here's a better question to ask. Number two, wouldn't I rather be ahead of them? In other words, be unlike the person that I dislike. Our, our sinful nature says, I want to get even. But what if we could actually get ahead of them? And the way that we get ahead of them is by not paying them back, not doing mean things, not being a, a people problem for them that we repay the, the evil that they did with kindness. And this leads to the, the third question that you need to ask, and this is going to make a lot more sense after next week's message. But here's the third question. What story do I want to tell? What story do you want to tell? Is your story going to be that I ended up no better than the person that hurt me? Which, by the way, that's not a very good story, is it? Now, a better story to tell would simply be this. As a follower of Jesus, I actually was the bigger person. I was the, the better person. I didn't try to repay evil with evil. Instead, I did the fourth thing, and this is the better story. It's what would it look like for me to return good for evil? What would that look like? And as you're returning good for evil, not pouting and not fuming about it, you know, it's not reluctant, but what would it really look like for you to return good for evil? That you weren't trying to get even with them, you were actually, you know, trying to be more and more like Jesus instead of being like them. That you're actually trying to live out the words of Jesus who says this in Luke 6, 27, love your enemies, do good to those who mistreat you. Now, this is fascinating here. What does Jesus say to do with our enemies? Ignore them? Is that what Jesus says? No. Jesus doesn't even just say that we're to forgive our enemies. He says, no, no, no. You go above and beyond that. He says, you actually do good for those who hurt you, those who have mistreated you. See, Jesus knows that when you do that, that's what's going to free your mind, and that's what's going to protect your heart. Listen, getting even with somebody, that's very predictable. It's very predictable. It's very easy. But Jesus is inviting us into the unpredictable. He's inviting us into the extraordinary. He's inviting us to tell a better story. And again, that's what we'll look at next week. Is how do you tell that better story? How do you actually return good for the evil that's been done? Now, I'd encourage you, go ahead and read the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 25. See if you can figure it out on your own. You don't need me to always be telling you what the Word of God says. Figure it out on your own. Read 1 Samuel 25 and see if you can figure out how do you return good for the evil that's being done. All right, with that said, I thought that today would be a good chance for us just to remember the good that was done for us in the midst of evil. And I want to share communion. And it's not only in light of today's message that we've done, but it's in light also of that this is Thanksgiving week, and we should be always thankful for what Jesus 
has done for us. And so uh, in just a couple moments, we're going to uh, have you go back and, and get the, uh, the offering elements, and then you'll return back to your seat, and we'll uh, share in communion uh, together. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together to worship and to celebrate and to, to uh, just our, our um, the, the music is worship and our giving is worship, the hearing of your word, that is worship as well. But Lord, we also know that worshiping you through this act of uh, communion um, is the thing that you commanded us to do. You said to do this in remembrance of who you are and all that you did in our lives. And so, Lord, as we uh, now prepare our hearts and prepare our minds, we know that the Apostle Paul said that anytime we're, we're getting ready for communion, we should evaluate and examine our own lives. Is there anything in us that's not pleasing to you? And that we should confess those sins to you before we actually um, take communion with one another. And so, Lord, I pray that right now we will be reminded that even though we've done a lot of of evil that we've sinned against you you return good you died on the cross for our sins so that our sins may be forgiven and so help us just in a simple act of obedience and faith just confess our sins to you and we know that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness Lord when we're in a right relationship with you when we're in koinonia communion with you then we can be truly in community with one another and be the, the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus to a lost and hurting world. So Lord, help us continue to examine our hearts right now as we go and receive our communion elements. So I'm just gonna ask everybody to stand to your feet right now and just one row at a time, uh, starting here in the front. If you would go to the back, receive your elements, go around the backside and, and, and then we'll share in communion together.
God, you are over it all. Over not just our lives, but over the lives of those who have heard us. And you know all things. So help us in those moments that we're tempted to get even, to get back with those that have hurt us, to remember that we should love because you first loved us. That Jesus, you were willing to give up your life so that we may have life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered together with his followers, including Judas, who he knew was about to betray him. But he still wanted to share the meal with everyone. Even Peter, who he knew was about to deny him. The love of Jesus is all-encompassing. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. He desires to break bread with you, to fellowship with you, to share in this, what we call communion. And so he gathered together with his disciples and he broke the bread and he said, take, eat for this is my body broken for you. And he was prophesying in that moment what was about to happen just a couple hours away that his body was going to be beaten and whipped, he was going to be mocked, he was going to be spit upon, and ultimately he was going to be hung on a cross. He did that for you. He did that for me. And one of the most amazing things to think about is, even if you were the only person who ever sinned in all of human history, Jesus still would have given up his body for you. That's how much he loves you. And so symbolically, when he broke the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body. He said, I want you then to, to do this in remembrance of me until I come again, until we eat together at the final festival, the final feast. So we are commanded as followers to, from time to time, gather together, take some bread, break it as a reminder his great sacrifice for us. So let's break it together and share. Just a broken, beaten body on a cross isn't enough. Lots of people hung on crosses. What makes Jesus different? Well, Jesus is God in the flesh. It's clear throughout Scripture that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus shed his blood there on the cross. And then what he did with that blood during the three days that he was dead is he went into the, the holy temple in heaven and he poured out his blood. See, no longer did 
goats and lambs and bulls and pigeons need to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus said, I am that ultimate sacrifice. No longer will it be animal blood. It's now my blood poured out on the altar. Sin will be forgiven once and for all. And so again, Jesus was prophesying that night as he shared with his disciples and he had broken the bread and now he poured out the wine. He said, take and drink for this is the blood of the new covenant. That old covenant had been all about the shedding of animal blood. But now he was establishing this new covenant, a covenant that was in his blood. And so he said, we should gather together as his followers, even 2,000 years now later, and periodically we should drink of the cup and be reminded that his blood has power. The power to forgive not just our sins, but every sin that anybody commits, even the sins that have been done against us. Those people that you have a problem with, that you want to get even with, no, 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 no. You want to return now good for the evil that they've done by sharing with them the good news of Jesus, that his blood has power. And in the same way that Jesus has forgiven me of my sin, now I'm forgiving you of your sin as well. So let's be reminded of that here today as we take the cup together. Jesus, again, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you that you are overall. You're above everything. Let's sing that one more time. God overall. Let's give him a big hand here today. Again, no matter what, no matter who, he is in control. We are not. My former boss, Rick Warren, wrote the, the book, The Purpose Driven Life, and the first sentence of the book says, it's not about you. And Rick often said this to us. He said, I could have stopped writing right there. And if people really lived it out, it still could have been a best-selling book. If we'll truly grasp that, it's not about you. It's not about your hurt. It's not about your pain. It's not about your sin. It's not about anyone or anything else. It's all about Jesus.
you haven't, give your life to him fully. If you already have, give him even more. Give him everything. He's above it all. Thank you, Jesus.